there's a slide coming up with a four-word phrase on it. <clears throat> See those four words? In your own mind, I don't want to say them, but I want you to think in your mind, how do they sound? Like when you read them, how is it reading in your mind? Don't tell anybody. Okay, now if I add this picture of a cheetah, now how do you read it? And I'm, maybe I'll give some examples. Maybe when you saw it at first, you said he ran five miles. And then you see a cheetah, and you can imagine, even if you didn't do this, that you might think to yourself, he ran five miles. You see the difference? Like, he ran five miles. Because he's a cheetah. Now, what, what, how would you say it if you saw this? Like, <laughs> same phrase. You'd be like, he ran five miles? He ran five miles? He ran five miles? You see how it's a little bit different? Different, what about this one? I won't even go there as to what you might be saying about running five miles here. This is called paralinguistics. Paralinguistics is, is the notion that the, the full meaning of a statement goes beyond the words themselves. That the words themselves in conversation are insufficient to convey the full meaning of what you're trying to say. We have the words, he ran five and miles. Those four words are there, but, but there's many nonverbal cues that would be required to kind of fill in the blanks of, well, is it he ran five miles, or he ran five miles, or he ran five miles, or he ran five miles? It's... That's paralinguistics. I'll give you another example. What about this phrase, this three words here? There's O, Brussels, and Sprouts. Now, I've taken out any kind of grammar like, uh, or punctuation because today we're dealing with uh, something that's come from the Hebrew, and Hebrew didn't have punctuation. So even when you're reading your Bible, much of the paralinguistic work has already been done for you. When you see an exclamation point or a comma or a question mark or that sort of thing, already many scholars have done hard work to kind of try to figure out what are they actually saying. How did it sound? But this is how it starts in the Hebrew is O, Brussels, and Sprouts. So what does this mean? Well, it could be like surprise. Like my wife, she likes, she's one of the three people on earth who likes Brussels sprouts. (laughs) So she'll walk into the kitchen and go, oh, Brussels sprouts. Right? That's one way of doing it. Or um, you could have a grimace like me. Oh, Brussels sprouts. That's how it could sound. It could be surprised in kind of a neutral sort of way, like you were expecting macaroni and cheese or hoping for macaroni and cheese, but it's Brussels sprouts. And you could walk in and go, but the kids are around, so you don't want to like, be actively disappointed in the presence of your spouse. And so you say like this, oh, Brussels sprouts. But they know exactly what you mean. You're, you're saying, why not the mac and cheese? For crying out loud, why the Brussels sprouts? Right? It, could be, it could be scientific. This could be a scientific thing. You could be staring at a Brussels, not knowing it's sprouted. Oh, Brussels sprouts? I'm just saying, you could do that. That's legal. You could do that. It could be... Um, the kind of surprise, say you had a lost dog and his name was Brussels Sprouts and he had finally returned home after years and he jumped into your arm. You could go, oh, Brussels Sprouts. <laughs> I'm just saying, you could have done this. 
You, this could be, uh, uh, it could be uh, even a, like a, almost a, like a goody two-shoes Christian fake curse word. You know how we have these things? Like imagine, you know, you know there's this girl, she has her A-plus paper, she's about to turn in a week early and she trips and it falls in a mud puddle and she'd be like, oh, Brussels sprouts. We don't know. We just don't know what's being said here. This is paralinguistics. This is the work. And I'm setting this up this morning because when we get to the end of the message today, we're going to have our own challenge to figure out how do we read, how does the text sound in our mind? Because there is nothing that will give us any kind of conclusive data. The text is insufficient for us to interpret when we get there. So we have a long way to get there, but that's where we're heading this morning, is to make our own determination. How are you going to read the Bible, is going to be the question today as we get there. So if you would, um, if you take your Bible and open to Genesis 28. If you're using one of ours, it's page 20. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep the one in the seat back in front of you as a gift. Merry Christmas. Now, I have to recap last week's story, which is a story within a bigger story, uh, so uh, I have to be somewhat brief. Uh, Last week, we were dealing with Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. God gave Abraham a great promise. God then passed this great promise of Abraham down to Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest of the twin brothers. But the Lord had designated that Jacob would receive the promise. And last week's story was how Jacob, through the kind of encouragement of his mother, tricked his father into thinking he was Esau. Isaac was blind, and Jacob convinced his father that he was Esau so that Isaac gave Jacob the blessing by accident. Isaac was fooled into giving Jacob the blessing, thinking that Jacob was Esau. That's a very brief um, account of what happened. And then um, the remainder of chapter 27 and the first uh, nine or so verses of 28 deal with kind of the aftermath of what happened from that story, which we we don't have time to read this morning, but I will tell you, the, the most significant part of the aftermath is that Esau is furious and full of rage. And he says something to the effect of, my dad's old, he's not going to live long, and when he dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. I'm going to find him, and I'm going to kill him. And the household knows this. Rebecca knows this, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And so she goes to Isaac, and she says, I, I can't stand the thought of losing my sons in this kind of family feud. And she, she picks up on... Um, she, she tries to find a way to get Jacob out of the picture, and she picks up on the fact that he's not married, and she says, let's send him away to, his, to our distant homeland so that he can get married and marry one of our, and within our ancestry, have a good, healthy marriage. Let's send him away, and then we'll, when Esau's anger subsides, we'll call him home. That's kind of her plan. Isaac seems to uh, approve of the plan. In fact, Isaac has a turnaround. If you have the time to read this on your own, it's worth reading. Isaac kind of snaps out of his his uh, favoritism with Esau, it's almost as though when the spell is broken here at, the, at the, the trick, that Isaac begins to see who Esau really is. There's a backhanded comment about uh, Esau's foolishness and who he marries. And they, they say, we don't want you to marry a Canaanite woman. That's what they say to Jacob. Even though Esau had married two Canaanite women, and the Bible says they were a source of grief to his mother and father. 
And so, and then Isaac once again gives Jacob a, a much more clear and full blessing. So he was fooled into giving them the blessing, but in this short little chapter, 28, 1 to 9, Isaac goes back to Jacob and gives him a, a much fuller, very clear blessing, and then sends him off to get married. And so there's, there's a, Isaac kind of comes out of this, this infatuation he had with his eldest son. And so as we enter verse 10, where we're going to begin to read, Isaac, or excuse me, Jacob is leaving home. He's, uh, he's essentially penniless. He's by himself, and he's on his way to, to see his ancestors, Laban, in the town of Haran. And I guess I would start with, is this what it means to be blessed? Is this what it means to be blessed? I mean, Jacob is technically blessed, but you have him here, and he's, he's leaving with nothing. In fact, in the reading this morning, we're going to see that when he goes to sleep, he has to sleep with a rock for a pillow. I would say that uh, this is what it looks like when we take the blessing from the Lord rather than receive the blessing from the Lord. When we, when we make the blessing the object of our affections, this is typically what happens is we want something that God was probably going to give us anyway, but we want it in our own time. And so we take it, and when we take it, we ruin it. Have you ever seen this? You can see this with kids in playrooms all the time. They see somebody playing with a toy who's having tons of fun, and they take the toy, and then they don't know what to do with it. And they've fought for it, and they take it, and they hold it, and they sit there, but all the other kids kind of move away from them, and it's, there's no fun anymore. Nobody wants to play darts with them. Nobody wants to play Legos with them. Nobody wants to do that because of the way they behave. They've, they've taken the promise, and in taking the promise or the blessing or whatever it is, they've lost the, they've lost the joy in it or the, or, or, the, or the kind of the meaning that was in it that they thought they would gain. This is, this is the aftermath of idolatry, is when we go after something in the hope that it will give us meaning, and when we get it, it continues to require greater cost. It continues to ask more and more of us. You ever notice that the things in life that are our idols, they cost way more than we ever intended to spend. They require way more time than we ever intended to give. And they are, come at a greater relational expense than we ever thought they'd happen. We, we have to sacrifice our friends and family for them. We have to sacrifice our time and our money for them. And then when we get them, they don't give us what they promised to give us in the first place. This is the kind of church where some of us will work very, 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 very hard so that we can have enough money to relax one day, and then you will never relax. And you'll miss your family. They'll be grown and gone. And that's the mark of idolatry. The mark of idolatry is hanging our hopes on something rather than hanging our affections on God and, and waiting for Him to give them to us this is, by the way, if you look at someone who's trying to pursue their salvation by works, this is a way to understand workspace salvation as a form of idolatry. That there's somebody who's trying to earn their salvation. What they're trying to do is, is work and strive to get the blessing totally separate from their affections from the Lord. They're focused on getting to heaven or getting avoiding hell or getting saved. They want to be saved. Is, is the Christian life about being saved? 
Is that, is that our goal? Is that the object of the Christian life? Is that what we, we, do, we do all of our waking and sleeping on, is to get saved? No. The Christian life is about expressing our love and affection and worship towards God. But some people, they, they make salvation the mission, and so they work very hard to earn that. And in earning it, they've lost it. These are the consequences of idolatry. And as we, we pick up, as we pick up here in the story, Jacob is kind of reaping the whirlwind that, that he, he has sown through, through the broken relationships at home. And we're going to find ourselves in quite an ironic, this is a very ironic scene, if you can imagine that. Jacob is, is left home. And just listen to the irony here. Jacob is running away, but he's also going towards something, right? So he's running away from home, but he's heading for Haran to get married. And so there's kind of a, is he running away or is he going somewhere? And he's blessed and yet he's broke. He's the father of many nations and yet right now he's wifeless, he's childless, and he's homeless. He is the Lord of Canaan as far as the blessing is concerned, but he's leaving Canaan. He's under God's promise, but he's scared and alone. You see, you see the irony in all this? That through the circumstances, all the things that he thought he was, he, he kind of is, but at the same time, he is also kind of isn't. He's in this messy middle place of life. And I think this is how many of us uh, live and walk and are right now. I think we are probably, many of us are between two realities. Some of you this morning may feel like you're broke, <laughs> but you may feel that you're blessed. And some of you may feel that you're, uh, you're running away from something. But at the same time, you're heading towards something. Or some of you may feel that there's a promise for you, but that you're very alone. Some of you may be even in this room or in this church or even on Thanksgiving. We're among people and yet still very alone. I think this is how, how we live our life. I hope this morning um, you can be encouraged that this is when God comes to us. That in the middle of all of this, as we're leaving and as we're running away and as we thought we were blessed and we find out we're alone and as we thought God would provide or we thought there was great provision or one day we were in wealth and now we're in poverty and now there's a rock for a pillow instead of the tents and, the, and all the garments we once have, I hope that you can trust that this is the place and this is the setting that God oftentimes, oftentimes comes to us. This is, this is the setting in which we live and this is in the middle, right? We, we, the Christian word for this is the land of the already and the not yet. And this is how God comes to us and this is how he comes to Jacob here in the text. And so what I'd like to do is I'm going to read 10 to 22 with this in mind and, and, uh, and then we'll we'll discuss kind of how the Lord comes to him. This is what's said. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east 
to the north and to the south. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is no other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food and eat to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God and this stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Here we have this wealthy son sleeping with a rock under his head and he has this dream. It's the dream of a, of a stairwell. It's probably best to understand it as a stair. Some of you may historically remember it as a ladder. It's more like a stairway um, going, that's connecting heaven and earth. And on the stairway are angels ascending and descending. Descending and ascending on the stairwell, back and forth. And then God is also there. In the Bible, in your tran- the NIV that we're reading, it says there above it, the Lord spoke. It's not sure if it, the Lord's above it all, or the same can be translated as um, beside him or over him. You know, he's laying down. If you remember, he's laying down. And the Lord is, I think probably the best way to understand is the Lord is speaking over him. Either way, the Lord's there. That's the important part, is the Lord's there. So there's the angels ascending and descending, and the Lord's there, and the Lord speaks, and he gives him this promise. And this is a strange way. This is the, the Lord has not given the promise in this fashion before. The, Lord, the way that the Lord gives it to Jacob is so different than any other way that he's given it in the past. He didn't give it this way to Isaac. He didn't give it this way to Abraham. Why, why now? Why such a different way of giving this promise to Jacob? That's, that's what I want, I want us to try to figure out here is, is what is God trying to express? And I think we can learn some from what he says here. He speaks, and he speaks the promise. And, and for the most part, this is the same as he's, the Lord's always said. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham and Isaac. And he says, I'll give your descendants the land on which they're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That, that is the stock Abrahamic blessing that the Lord's given. So, so the, there's nothing there that kind of stands out as unique. But then watch this. Watch this. Verse 15. He follows this promise up with this statement. I am with you. And will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. Now that's unique. He doesn't say that to Abraham. He doesn't really say that to Isaac. He tells Isaac he's going to be with him. But he doesn't really say that to, to, to Isaac. But he, he takes this time here to say to Jacob, I'm going to be with you. 
I won't leave you. I'm going to take care of you. I won't forsake you. And I think this, I think this is where the imagery, that they tie together to give the broader meaning. That I think what Jacob needs to know is that he's not alone. Right now he's, he's asleep with his rock on the head. He's leaving his family. He's leaving everything behind. He's leaving all of the things he thought were going to be his from the blessing. He's left it all. He's by himself. And the Lord has given him this imagery and these words to remind him, you're not alone. I'm with you. And I'm not going to leave you. The idea of the stairway connecting heaven and earth. The, it's it's the, whole, the whole motion here is the Lord's way of trying to say to Jacob, I'm close by. You're not far from heaven. That, that I'm here and that my angels are attending and that you'll be okay. I think that's what Jacob needed to hear. I think that's what he really cares for. And, and this is strange because he's received this, this big promise. There's this big universal promise he's gotten, right? I'm going to make your household great. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. All nations on the earth will be blessed. This land will be yours. I mean, that is, that's a large, universal, global promise that the Lord has given Jacob. And yet I'm inclined to think it doesn't matter that much to Jacob right now. That in one sense, on the first part of this promise, Jacob is the most important human being on the entire planet right now. And yet somehow I don't think that that's what Jacob needs to hear. I don't think that that Jacob cares so much right now about the fact that there's this distant promise that's great though it is, singular though it is, absolutely fabulous though it may be, I don't think it's keeping him warm at night. I think what he needs to know is that God is with him. There's two reasons I think this. Here's the first. Look at what Jacob says in verse 20. The Lord speaks. He wakes up. He says, wow, surely the Lord's in this place. He reacts to it. Then he makes this vow. Now, when he makes the vow, does he say that if God will give me Canaan and the lands to the north, the south, and the east, and west, and if he will make my descendants like the dust of the earth, and if all the nations are really going to be blessed through me, then he will be my God, and I will set up this pillar and memorial to him, and I will give him a tenth of everything he gives. Is that what he says? No. No, God's given him this fabulous promise, and this is what Jacob, how Jacob reacts. He says this, If God will be with me and will watch over me, if you'll give me food to eat and clothes to wear. You have this huge promise that God gave Abraham, that he gave Isaac, and that he gave Jacob. And Jacob, that's not what Jacob's focused on. Jacob says, well, if he's going to be with me, then he'll be my God. That's the first reason I think that the, the imagery and the dream and, and the substance of the promise, that, that this, that's what's being significant to Jacob. And here's the second reason. The second reason I think this is because this is how it feels in my own life, and I think this is how it feels in your life. That somehow, somehow I think many of us here, those of us who confess Christ, believe that there is a great promise out there for us, this promise of eternal life in heaven, this promise that for, forever and ever, beyond time, we will one day be with the Lord and we'll be in paradise and there'll be no more pain or loneliness or suffering, that we'll forever be in a perfect place. And that's encouraging. I, I am encouraged by that. 
It should be enough. I think you'd agree with me. It should be enough. And yet I find myself yearning to feel God with me. Like I I know, I have faith. I really believe, as I I think many of you do, that we really will spend all of eternity in paradise. Those who submit to the Lordship of Christ will for all eternity be in a perfect place. How come I can believe that and still be lonely? Like I still have a need in this my own little world right now. Like somehow this tiny sliver of time that we call life really matters to us. It matters to us in such a way that God's promise of, oh, and I'm going to be with you also, seems to make all the difference. If we had to choose one or the other, eternity, paradise with God, or him with us in life, my hunch is, is that our mind would win every time and we'd choose eternity. I mean, just stack it up, right? Eternity, 72 and a half, 84 years, however long the Lord keeps us. Eternity. My, my hunch is, is that our mind every time would win the day and we would choose eternity with Christ. I also think, though, every single time that my mind would win, my heart would grieve. That I'm losing God. Long-distance promises are great. They may be even more, infinitely more important, but they don't do a good job of keeping us warm at night. And this is, my hope, this is an encouragement for you, particularly if you're lonely for God. If you have come here this morning and you feel like it's a long time since you've met God or been with God, I'm here to say that he's, he, he promises to be with us now. He's with us. That one day he's going to draw us close to him, but until then, he's committed to drawing close to us. In fact, he says, he says he will be with us. You know, this Christmas season, you've got to remember, and a virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the word became flesh, and it made its dwelling place among us, that Jesus Christ is the God with us, that there's this understanding that God understands that the big promise in the distance is great, but there's a need now, there's a need now in our lives to feel like God is with us. And I'm here this morning to say to you, I'm not as good as a dream, but God's with us. He's with you. You're not alone in this messy middle world where you're running from something, but you're going to something, or where you're broke and blessed, where you're afraid and yet among people. God is with you. And Jacob believes it, and he wakes up a changed man. You see this? He wakes up. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. So he clearly doesn't think it was... uh, like a bad sleep. In fact, he says, how awesome is this place? Why, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. And he sets up a pillar. And he takes his rocky pillow, and he puts it on the pillar, and he anoints the pillow with oil, and he names the place Bethel, and he makes a vow to God. So, so Jacob is clearly not getting up going, ah, I had the strangest dream last night. i got to get a more comfortable pillow. He's not doing that. It's obvious that he's convinced of what's happened, that he knows that the Lord's met him here. And, and that being said, this is, this is the challenge. 
is what he says next. Now, this is, this is our, our paralinguistic challenge here. I, I don't even know how to read it. I just have to read it. I'm just going to read it. He vows and he says this. If, I'm trying to read it monotone. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, like I said, there's already been a lot of paralinguistic work that's been done to get to this place. But if my hunch is, is when you read that, you see the if-then words, and you think that this is a conditional statement. That's what, that's what many scholars say, is this is a conditional statement. That, I, that Jacob is saying, if God will be with me, I mean, he actually just said it, if God will be with me, and if he feeds me and clothes me, and if he takes care of me, then he'll be my God, and I'll set up this pillar and I'll give him a tenth of the tithe. That's, that's, that's one way of reading this, is that's, that, that, that Jacob is giving a conditional statement before the Lord. Sounds radically immature, given what's just happened. It's disappointing, but that's one, that's one way of understanding this, is that Jacob has responded in a conditional way to the Lord. Did you hear that if-then? If then, if God does this, then I'll do this. Which implies, by the way, that if God doesn't do this, then I won't do this. If God doesn't clothe me the way I expect to be clothed, we usually add that, right? And the timing that I expect, under the circumstances I expect, then he will not be my God. And I will not erect a pillar and memorial for him. And I will not tithe after him. Do you see that, that if it's conditional, there's this thought of if God doesn't meet the conditions, then we will not worship God. Which is disappointingly immature, especially given what's just happened to Jacob. Well, I mean, what just happened? He just had this dream where God shows up. In fact, many scholars say it can't be conditional. They say, your paralinguistics are all in a funk. Because they say, look at the promises that God, what person would hear these promises from God and then go, well, if God's going to be with me, then, I'll, then he'll be my God. But if he's not, when God shows up in a dream with a stairway to heaven and I'm going to be your God and here's the blessings and when Jacob clearly believes the dream because he sets up the pillar, he anoints the pillow, he names the place house of God, that's Bethel, he names the place house of God, they say there's no way that it can be a conditional statement. It's just not convincing. What person would be that immature in their faith? And so they say this is a better way to read it. This is, a, this is the way it ought to sound. In fact, the word if, by the way, can also be since. Same in the Hebrew. So they say, in, in fact, in your Bibles, it might be a note. It says, or since, at the bottom of the page. So let's say the way to understand this is that J- uh, Jacob is saying, since God will be with me and will take care of me and will clothe me and will feed me, then he will be my God and I'll set up this pillar and I'll tithe to him. Do you see the difference? It's not conditional. It's much more confessional. It's possessional. 
It has the declarative about it. Since God's going to be with me. In fact, you don't even need the since. You could leave it at if. You could just say it a different way. You could say, well, if God's going to be with me and clothe me and care for me, well, then he'll be my God. That's what they say Jacob's saying. Jacob's just declaring, wow, well, if this is the God that I have, well, then he's my God. That He was my father's God, but now he's my God because he's come into my life and he said he's going to be with me. If that's the God I have, then I have that God. That that's all Jacob's doing is Jacob is responding to the vow of God with his own vow, saying, well, then you're my God, and this pillar is a memorial of what you've said and what I've said, and I'm going to give you a tenth of everything. Oh, I like that one. That's a good one. For the past two weeks, I've been arguing with my wife about it. But which one is it? She's more of a realist. And then I keep going back to her and I go, but look at the promise. Who, who, could, who could get up after having this God moment and be conditional with the Lord? And as I've thought about it more and more, I've become less convinced that Jacob was doing that Jacob is not being conditional. I don't know what he is. I, again, it's beyond us. It's a paralinguistic issue. But I do know this, that I have had God moments in my life. I've had times when I'm sure that God has been in my life. Right? I have faith in the Lord. I trust in the promises. I believe them. I believe that even at a distance that they're offered to me and that he's with me technically. And yet I still find myself giving the Lord if-then statements all the time. Well, if then if you do that, then I'll do that. If the Lord wants me to do this thing, then I'll do this. If, if the Lord gives me this, then I'll do this. If the Lord provides for me here, well, then I'll give up that. If the Lord gives me that, then I'll be the, that. It, the, the sadness of the whole thing is that I am an anointed pillar of the Lord. Right? Through baptism, we represent the anointed pillar of the Lord. We're saying God ha- we've had a God moment, that we have committed ourselves in faith to the Lord. And yet I think, I think we in the church broadly live a conditional faith with God. We put a carrot on a stick and we put it in front of the Lord and we say, well, if you do that for me, then I'll do that for you. God allows us to possess him and rather we choose to condition him. I think God just wants to say, what, can't, you just, can't I just be your God? And we say, well, if you do that, you can be our God. If you do that this promotion, or if you fix this thing in my husband, or if you do that, or if I get these friends, or why do I still not have a wife, or why, why do I still have this sin issue? If you fix that, then I'll submit to you here. We do all these conditions when the Lord says, I am the Lord of the universe, and I'm actually allowing you to possess me. Do you realize how glorious that is? That I've given you the right to say, you are my God. And you've given us conditions. What, what, are you, what are you waiting for? To the, to the non-Christian first, what, why have you not submitted to the Lord? I mean, I, I, do, I think that there are people here who believe there is a God, who believe that there's promises, and yet they're holding short 
They believe that God's offered them offered them something they don't deserve, right? They're in the middle of life. They're running from one thing and they're running towards the next. They've stolen one thing that should have been theirs anyway, but they stole it. They're broke and they're, they're trying to convince themselves they're blessed. They're in this middle, messy world. That's how they're living. And I want to know what, what's holding you back from accepting the promises of God. Is it... Is it the fact that you think you've done enough already? Have you done enough good things? Is it that you're going to make enough signature commemorative things at Christmas to count? Is that what you're doing? Don't be fooled. Unless he's your God, he's not your God. And I would say, this this to me, this whole text preaches more to the church, uh, to be quite honest with you, of us... What kind of faith are you living? Each one of you, what kind of faith are you living? Are you setting these conditions for the Lord? Are you just submitting in faith? Are you just submitting in faith to say, God said he would be with me, therefore he's my God. God said that he would make me into a great people, that he would bring me to a place. God's made these promises. God gave his own son up so that these promises might be met, therefore he's my God. He's my God. He's mine. Are you saying that? Or are you just laying out conditions after conditions? Well, I'll give the Lord this if he gives me this. And I'll, and I'll, I'll tithe. You know, the tithe is in the distance here, but it's such an easy, it's such an easy target to put up here. I'm just going to set the tithe on this stool and ask you, are you living a conditional life or not? I mean, that's, that's such an easy one. I mean, an easy target. I understand it's hard to tithe. But are you living a conditional faith? I'm going to ask you this morning, I'm going to ask you to commit as we pray. Whether you're a non-believer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to commit. But if you're a believer, I'm, going to, I'm giving you an opportunity to confess your conditional faith to the Lord. That's what I'm doing. Just to be honest with him. I'm not saying it's going to fix it. I'm not, I don't have three steps. I'm out of notes. I don't have three steps as to how to get this right. It, there is no three steps. This is something you wake up one day and you realize, I'm still living a conditional faith. And you say, I'm sorry, God. Help me to not live a conditional faith. Help me to believe you're my God. And then you wake up the next day and you go, ah, still living a conditional faith. Lord, forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me for the decisions I made yesterday that were not made in faith, that I was too scared to step out in faith there. Help me to trust that you are my God, that you said you'd be with me. And then one day, if you do that every day for the rest of your life, one day you might wake up and not feel so convicted that that's where you messed up. Something else will take its place. That's what I'm asking, is that you would be honest before the Lord. I guess what I'm asking is, how do you read this passage? How do you translate it? Is your faith conditional or is it confessional?